we are starting our new unit, and we will start with um, Amos. So go ahead and uh, find him in your Bible. Not famous Amos. Famous Ooh, chocolate Talking cookies. about cookies. Yeah. We, I, I like the way they set this up. So we did Kings, first and second Kings, which is all history. And it tells us what happened. Now we're going to do several of the minor prophets from the same time periods, and it's going to explain why it happened um, as they deal with uh, the, the question of what God was doing, why these things happened, and how the actions that we saw there uh, in First and Second Kings and what they were, what problems and issues and all that it was creating. So we're in Amos. This will be session one. Listen to God is uh, our title. God's judgment awaits all who ignore him and his truth. So, judgment is coming. Uh, Amos is an interesting book. It's not one that we uh, turn to often. And um, he does not... He doesn't go to the kings or the court or the influential people. He is the everyday man's prophet, if you will. His calling is going to be... <coughs> very different. Like we've done Isaiah. Isaiah went to the kings and he, you know, had all these grand visions and all that. Amos is a minor prophet, although he's really not that minor. When we think of minor, he is not a court prophet. He's going to stand in town squares and stuff and talk to the, to the masses. So we're going to start today in Amos chapter 2 verses uh, 4 through 6. Uh, we'll start off with getting some background. Who is Amos? There we go. A little bit of Amos. He was from uh, Tekoa. It's a little town um, six miles south of Bethlehem. And the town sat on the top of the plateau that overlooks the Dead Sea. So, I mean, he's down there. Uh, I'll show us uh, some, a video that I took in the Dead Sea of those plateaus, and you'll see what his view would have been from town. Um, there was a caravan route that ran through that, that area. It didn't run through town, but it was like, you know... Kind of like Royer's Fort sits off of 422. It's not right there, but it's, it's down the way. Yeah, a couple miles. And that caravan route is what connected Jerusalem with Hebron and Beersheba, which were Judean areas. Um, they're the areas where Abraham wandered and lived in and all that. So they were, they're, they're mostly nomadic down that way. Uh, not towns and all that, but this was a caravan route. So he was right off the uh, main beaten path. As we open the book of Amos, and if you look at chapter 1, normally in the first couple of verses, they tell you about the guy. They'll tell you that he was the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, 
from this town or village. Well, one of the things that's missing from the book of Amos is his lineage. We don't know who Amos was. His father, his family was so unimportant, they don't even list his name. Um, usually, I mean, that, that's an important thing to know who the family was. But his was so unimportant, nobody would have known them. So it's not even listed. They didn't even bother with it uh, here. Uh, probably why he was so unimportant is, is that he was a shepherd and a fig farmer. Oh, what a combination. So he had fig trees and was a shepherd, which meant he would have sold wool and possibly um, sheep for sacrifices and stuff. But being six miles out of Bethlehem, most of the sheep for the temple came from Bethlehem, that area. So he's even farther away. Probably sheep didn't make it to the uh, market very often. It was probably the um, fleece that would have been sold. He probably peddled, was peddled fleece, whereas a lot of the other shepherds closer to Jerusalem were trying to raise perfect sheep in order to sell at the temple. His name means burden bearer, which is interesting. Uh, just remember, put that, tuck that away in the back of your mind, some corner recess, as we read through what he does as a prophet, that'll help. All right, any comments or questions? That's really all we know about Amos. We, we don't really have a whole heck of a lot. All right, here's a map. Now, you should have this map in your book. I've got it right up here as well. Uh, wanted to draw your attention uh, to where he's from. This is it right there. You can see Tekoa is uh, right there at the top end of uh, uh, the Dead Sea. There's Bethel. Bethel is where he is going to be sent by God to preach, to prophesy. Bethel is in the northern kingdom. Where's Amos from? From the southern. The southern kingdom. He's, he's a Jew. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's going to go north into Israel, who hates them, right? Why would God raise somebody up there? I mean, that's crazy, right? He's going to travel all the way up? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Um, so he's going to go from down here to up there, and he's going to proclaim his message. Comment? Question? Alright. The all-awaiting video. This is a video I took from our bus as we were driving along the Dead Sea. You can see how long the Dead Sea is. We came down to it uh, over here because we went to Jericho first. So we drove the whole length of the Dead Sea and the side of the bus I was sitting on is the Judean um, desert, this plateau area up here. So I'm looking up at it from the Dead Sea. You can see, I mean it is just the, the Dead Sea is to my left and uh, you can just see the, uh, the caves and stuff in there naturally forming. Up there is where his village would have been, somewhere up that way. I don't know what point this is uh, along the Dead Sea. 
But just to give you an idea of, of the terrain, when it says it overlooked, it's very, I mean, it just drops. See where the water runs off when it rains occasionally up there. I, I just couldn't get over the terrain. Is that sandy? No, it is actually salt. The, this area is one giant salt crystal, um, and it's mineral salt. So it, it's the, the they, they like to make one of the biggest things that they make is makeup there facials and all this all this stuff we were when we went to the hotel we got uh, a whole bunch of samples and we got to bring it home um, this is it's just I mean this is a you know electric towers we know how tall they are I mean you can see there's like three of those tall to get up to just that part and it keeps climbing um, this is the area that they believe that uh, this is called the Sodom and Gomorrah area and they Supposedly you can see a face in there. It's supposed to be a pillar of salt of Jezebel of, um, Lot's, wife. Lot's wife and all this in there um, but Yeah, it's just one giant salt um, thing that's, you're down the area of Masada, too, there. Oh, we're way below where Masada You're below been. Masada. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to Masada the day before this. Okay, yeah. I thought that was in the... We're, we're heading down to Eilat. Okay. So that we could so cross we, into Jordan. Oh, okay. So we only went as far as Masada when I was there. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we went all the way down to the Red Sea, and then we went across into the Jordan to get okay. to Petra. Yeah, it's just really unbelievable. You can see spots in all the rocks where there's places to hide. When they talk about the uh, people setting upon them on the roads and stuff, mm -hmm. there are so many crevices and whatnot. Um, ambush was easy. How close are you to the water on the other side of the bus? Uh, at this point, it's probably a mile or so. Maybe, maybe two. It, it's not far. I mean, you can, like I said, you can just see. I mean, it just shears off, and as flat as it is where the bus is, it's that all the way to the water. I mean, it is just open, flat, and there's nothing there. Um, and you can see. I mean, somebody sitting on the top of that can see. You can see for miles to the other side of the mountain, where the mountains go up on the side of Jordan, um, the other side of the Dead Sea. Anyway, so his view of the Dead Sea would have been easy from the top of that plateau, overlooking all of that. The dead, well, I mean, the Dead Sea area, it, it, it's just barren. Up on top, it's desert. Um, it doesn't get a lot of rain and all that. It's not desert-like sand, like we think of uh, that. It's just barren hard pan with a lot of scrub brush, and that's what the sheep would eat, and that's why they grazed out there. 
Because when it would rain, it would be it, it, everything goes green for a while, and then the dry season comes, and it's just barren. Comment question. <laughs> Okay, so a quick outline. Oh, it flew away? What was it? A bird, origami. My children make them and leave them all over the house, little birds like that. Um, so a quick outline of Amos is uh, prophecies against the nation, which is where we'll be at today. Sermons for God's people, Israel's conditions uh, symbolized, and then a promise of restoration. So we'll, we'll look at that. I know the handout I just gave you. The pictorial explanation of Amos, uh, our little picture. Joe recommended that I print it on an on a 11 by 17. I will do that with the next one. Um, they are, uh, uh, yeah, then you can see it. Um, he's looking at it in, in terms of three, uh, the message to the nations, the message to Israel and its leaders, and then Amos' visions. Um, that's great. It doesn't outline the information. What it does is it outlines the thing. Amos is an interesting book because Amos, I, I, we don't know if he wrote it or not or somebody gathered it. The first part is kind of a history review. This first part, the messages to the nations. They're the proclamations that God made through Amos. The second part is a series of poems that Amos wrote or said uh, to the people and then the last part are just his visions so they're what he saw so this isn't even necessarily in historical order um, it's kind of a collection of Amos's greatest hits or something like that if you will uh, that's why we, we're not sure that Amos wrote it we don't know if Amos could even write we, we have so little information about him um, but what we do know is what he said and what he did, and that's what we'll be looking at. Um, yeah, we'll come to that later. All right, any questions on this? You can peruse that on your own uh, and follow it. Again, there are videos that are right on Right Now Media. Um, you can catch them and watch it. It's like eight minutes, and it, he, the guy draws it, explaining each element to it. It's really cool. Um, all right, here we go, the timeline, everybody's favorite. Uh, really, this timeline is the same timeline I gave you in Kings. Kings covered a lot of history. And I think we had 1,000 years worth of history, or maybe it was 800 years on that timeline. Well, the time, this timeline for Amos, we'll be doing Jonah, Hosea, and Michael later on. We're looking at a time uh, from 800 to 700. So this timeline is that same, but it's a slice of a hundred years out of there. And we're going to look at this area here, where the little red lines are coming down. This is the time... Huh? This is the time that we find Amos prophesying. You can see him. He's right here in yellow. 
All right, so this is it. So we're cutting through the middle of Uzziah, who was the king of Judah, Jeroboam the, the second, the king of Israel. We're going to talk about him in a bit. And really, that's it. Nobody else. There's no other prophets during this time period that Amos is at. Um, yeah, that's uh, Jeroboam the second, and that's Uzziah the king. Really, they're the only two things. There isn't a whole lot that went on. And that's important to understand. Amos was a prophet during a very peaceful time in the history of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It doesn't happen often. Uh, God sends him not to deal with the kings, but to deal with the people. They're at peace. Everything's going well. There's food. There's uh, Harvests are good, um, and all of that. So Amos is going to deal with a time of peace and prosperity, and what the people were not doing that was godly. Quick statement, summing up our lesson today. The Bible reveals the principles by which God judges us. That's the whole purpose of the Bible. It's to tell us what God's expectations are. It is the one sole reason the world hates it. There's no other religious book that is banned as much as the Bible. Because if we don't know it, then God can't judge us. That's the human mentality. I didn't know. They, we, we have this idea that we're going to be able to show up if God really does exist. We're going to be able to show up and go, well, I didn't know. I never read it. I didn't see it. If you would have told me, I would have paid attention. <laughs> and so they ban it. They outlaw it. They fear it. Because if you know, then you're held, you'll be held accountable. Well, God doesn't work that way. The very thought that you can get away with the idea of saying... I didn't know means you knew. Mm -hmm. All right? Those of us who have children, why did you do this? And they'll be like, well, I didn't know we weren't allowed to do that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, think, we, we, we both got that one child that always does what they knew they shouldn't have done, even though you didn't expressly say don't do this. It's like, Really? I, I need to spell this out for you. Well, it's the same thing. So the Bible is the principles by which we should be living. Uh, so now as we come into Amos, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, is at the height of its power. Jeroboam II has brought in great prosperity and peace. And it was a long time. If you look on your uh, timeline, you can see Jeroboam II, he more, um, was king for a long time. The problem with peace and prosperity is what? Complacency. And what? Complacency. Complacency. Oh, yeah. Nail and head. There you go. Uh, the people are the most wealthy, the most powerful, 
and they have become apathetic to the needs of the poor, the widowed, the orphan. Um, we need to understand this. This is important to God. How we treat poor people, people who have nothing to offer us, how we treat those who have been left with nothing, whether it's financially destitute, they're bang, you know, or what, how we deal with them and treat them, God has a way he expects us to, and he's going to judge us for it. And that's going to be today at least one of the big points that Amos is going to have. He starts con by condemning the Gentile nations. Um, we'll see that in a minute. And then he, um, he goes after them. God's got a message for Tyre, Sidon, all these nations, because they've broken the covenant God made with them. Now, what covenant did God make with all the Gentile nations? way back, way before Abraham. We have to go back to the time of Noah. That's the last time God dealt with the whole world. Noah gets off the boat and he builds an altar, offers sacrifice, and God shows up. And he makes a covenant with him and his sons and through them the whole entire world, all people. Gentiles, there was no Israel yet. You see it, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 10. And his covenant is this simple. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with whom, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. That's all the Gentile nations. Verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, the beasts of the earth, um, and as many that came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. We're responsible for our fellow men. Killing them is unacceptable murder. The nations around Israel, one of the number one ways they worshiped their gods was through killing children. Child sacrifice. Guess what? Right here. The, God made a covenant with men. You're going to answer for all that false blood. This is the whole argument about abortion. See, this comes right into today. Bam, right there we are. Are we killing children? We're sacrificing them daily by the thousands. Tens of thousands. God says he's, you're going to answer for that. Well, here we go. This is either true or it's not true. The nations surrounding Israel were doing the very same thing. Oh, they weren't doing it in utero. They were waiting for them to be born. 
and waiting for the high holy day for that God, and then they would bring them and place them on an altar. Or they would give them over to the temple to be used in whatever manner they chose, just to make some God happy. It was an issue. Israel was guilty of it too, weren't they? They had done the very same thing. I've actually stood in uh, one of the cities and saw where those altars were. They have markers for them because they found all the baby bodies buried there when the archaeologists dug it up. It was the altars to these gods that they would sacrifice children on. Uh, yeah. But that'll be pictures for another day. So the Bible reveals the principles by which God judges us. Right here. Genesis chapter 9. God is going to judge us based on that. But that's not all there is. So that was just, that was a freebie this morning. Amos, we're going to jump into, uh, yeah. okay. um, so that's what's going on. Amos chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, that's what's going on. Amos is proclaiming God's judgment on all the nations for breaking that covenant. We come to Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, and that's where we're going to pick up with our study this morning. So somebody read Amos 2, 4 through 8 for us. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah, that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar or in garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Okay. This sounds a little weird, but I want us to understand what's going on in Amos. He starts off with judgment of the nations because there's a covenant God made with all mankind about killing but we know that God meant more. We see this all the time. Jesus dealt with this. That the law says, do this, 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 and this. But he meant it to be more than that. It wasn't just a, a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. Um, you have the rich. Jesus had the rich. Were tithing at the temple. Remember that? And they were putting in huge sums. Lots of money. They brought their they brought their ten percent. But then you have the little old woman that comes with the two little mites, the smallest coins, and puts them in because it's all she has. And Jesus says she did better than all the rich people because there's a bigger principle there. God wants us to be generous, right? That's that's what we take from this. It's not that we give out of our abundance. We give until 
It hurts. It hurts, <laughs> right. It's not just about that. There's more to it. The law said you had to give 10%. And the Pharisees are like, yep, 10% of my mint leaves, 10% of my bay leaves, 10% of my oregano, here's 10% of all that I made, everything. See, I did the 10%. And God said, well, you don't love me more than 10%? He expected more because you had more. <clears throat> the widow gave everything she had. Well, this is the same thing. It isn't just that we shouldn't be killing people. See, the, the, the covenant was don't kill them. If you shed their blood, you're, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna answer for it. The law, God gave the law and said, you're responsible for your fellow Jews, your fellow Israelites, your brethren. You're supposed to look out for them. You're supposed to not glean the edges of your field. Why? Come on, I can get another buck and put it in the offering. I'll give you 10% of it. It was to provide for the poor. We are expected to look out for each other. See, that's the idea. The real idea is, is God wants us to look out for one another, to take care of each other. Well, they were rich. They were powerful. They trampled the head of the poor. Um, they sold them into slavery for <laughs> silver because they needed a pair of sandals. You need a pair of shoes. That's, uh, they, they were cheap. And so you were selling people into... Can you imagine being sold into slavery so that your landowner could buy shoes? He sold you off. Yeah. See, this is what they were doing. They were abusing people. Oh, but we didn't kill them. No, no, no. Uh, we didn't shed their blood or anything. No, you did worse. And that's, that's what Amos is prophesying against here. It's the abuse of those beneath you. Those that are less than you, they were abusing them. Just as the nations were committing crimes of murder of children, Israel was not looking out for one another. They weren't taking care. They're actually, according to the Levitical law, they weren't allowed to charge interest to their brethren. They could charge interest to the foreigner, but they weren't allowed to charge interest on each other. That's one of the reasons why most banking institutions in the world were founded and started by Jews because they couldn't charge each other interest, but they could use the money that they gained, borrowed from each other, to charge interest on all the Gentiles. That's why the Roman Catholic Church hated them. There's, there's so much history wrapped up in that. All right, so this is our, th that's the passage. What we have then are wrongs being <coughs> reviewed by God. That's what God is doing. He is going over what they're doing wrong. And what he has against them in this. And it isn't, it, it, it isn't these heinous crimes that the Gentiles. There's a higher expectation. The fact was is they were living like pagans. Oh, they weren't offering their children maybe. Maybe they were. Uh, we know that some did. Um, but God's saying, hey, how do you treat a weaker person matters. Why should we as Christians or why should they as Jews have to live to a higher moral standard than everybody else in the world? Be a light. To be a light. Yeah, it's hard. 
Yeah, it's not easy. Israel was set up to be God's chosen people, to be a light to the world. They were supposed to be different. The world was supposed to look at them and go, why are they doing so well? Everything is contrary to the way we live. Why are they doing it? But they didn't, did they? They wanted a king like everybody else. They wanted to worship gods like everybody else. They didn't want to be different. They wanted to be like everybody else. But God said, no, I want you to be different. We as Christians are meant to look different than the rest of the world out there. We're called to a higher moral standard. Just because something's legal, I get this, I get this argument all the time. Well, it's legal. Just because the government says it's okay doesn't mean God's okay with it. God made it simple. Don't kill other people. That was, that was the rule. We couldn't follow that. Israel was supposed to take it to a whole other level and actually care about those people and make sure that they weren't <coughs> having issues. This is the danger we run into when we allow culture to decide what's right and wrong. Do you see that? When we allow the code, when we take the Bible and we say, you know what, this is just some old book of rules and all, it, it's, it doesn't matter. When we don't see it as the book that God is going to judge us by, and we think that it's just, it's just a thing for Sunday, it's just my religion, it's just whatever, and we put it off to the side, where do we get our morals from? Culture, the world, the TV, the talking heads, they decide what's right and wrong. The world's struggling with that today, aren't they? There's Putin. He's a capitalist. He wants more. He is running a hostile takeover of the Ukraine. How's that any different than most large business execs trying to gather up all the business in a certain area. They show up with money and they buy up stock and they force the boards of the smaller companies to concede that they own them now. And they absorb them, they sell off all the assets, take the best people, dump the rest and add it to their thing. It's a hostile takeover, right? We don't have any problem with that, do we? That's just business, right? We want to build something and something's in the way. We go to the government and we spend a little money and we get them to do an imminent domain, right? Oh, now we got that road we need so now that our building can get built, right? Isn't that how that works? That's a hostile takeover. Putin, we need more resources to fund our country. Ukraine's got a lot. Let's just go take them. Hostile takeover. The world struggles with that, though, doesn't it? Because, well, wait, now you're, 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 you're conquering another country. And there's, there's issue with that. See, where do we draw that line? It's okay for a business to buy out another business. It's all right to get the government to step in and, and take your land or whatever so you can push your project. For, those things are all acceptable. But send in tanks and planes to take a country so that you could have more resources. We, we kind of, uh, see, this is the problem. The world has made the standard. 
and we got issues with it. And there's a lot of argument, a lot of debate, a lot of hand washing going on right now because some of the countries are like, well, but we, we don't want it. They don't want to. And they're being forced by other countries to say this is bad. But they don't necessarily agree. See, the, the whole moral standard. There's got to be something that is the solid moral standard. That's what the Bible offers us. That's what God gave to us. He said, here's my rules for life. And if you live by them, you're going to have a good life. You'll have a long life. It doesn't mean you'll be rich. It doesn't mean you'll be powerful. It means that you will be moral. And you won't have all the complications that ruin your soul and your enjoyment. See, there's that word joy. You may not have be happy about being the lowest guy on the totem pole, but somebody's got to be down there. But you can have joy in God doing it well and still be the lowest guy on the totem pole. The dangers of allowing the culture to decide what is right and wrong means that weak people get tramped on. That's what happens. Whether it's business or anything else, the weak always lose. And right now, the whole abortion thing, the weakest are losing because unborn children are as weak as you can get. And they have no say, no know anything about it. <clears throat> Comment or question? One other thing. Uh, we didn't talk about it. They were so morally bankrupt that fathers and sons were using the same girl. They, they had the same mistress, if you can imagine. Um, yeah. We think that we've got the, uh, the, the worst um, sexual morality right now in this country. We're, we're not that. We're not there yet. Um, we make movies about that sort of stuff, but it isn't a running thing going in the culture. It was a running thing. It was bad enough that Amos mentions it um, with it. And it's not the only place it shows up in Scripture. Corinthians had this issue. All right. Let's move along. Amos chapter uh, 2, verses 9 through 11. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. All right, so he's laying out his um, issues yeah, there's all this sin in the first couple of verses we just read. But now he's talking about God is the one that destroyed the Ammonites. The Ammonites were the strong race in the land of Canaan. Israel had no chance against them, but God went before them and destroyed them. And here we are, oh, probably 1,200 years later from the Exodus, 1,200 years later or so, the people are living just like the Ammonites. They're acting just like the Ammonites, which God punished by wiping them out. If you go back and read uh, in your Old Testament, 
God talks about that the time the Canaanites hadn't fulfilled all the evil that they needed to. It hadn't reached the point that God was ready to punish them. And then they got there and Israel came in and wiped them out. God knew what was going on. He says, I'm the one that did this. I'm the one that caused all this to happen. And then we come down a little bit and he talks about the Nazarites. I don't know if you know a whole lot about the Nazarites. Uh, it's a term that shows up occasionally. There are two famous Nazarites. Anybody know who they are? Samson. Samson is one. He was actually the first one. He was a Nazarite for his whole life. It was a lifelong thing. Normally it wasn't. We'll talk about that in a second. John the Baptist? No. Although he could be considered one, he wasn't. He hadn't been dedicated to it. Paul took a Nazarite vow. There's one other person that was a Nazarite their whole life. Wasn't he a prophet? Yes, he was. Darn, I can't remember his name. <laughs> You're going to kick yourself in a second. Samuel. Samuel was the other lifelong Nazarite. Now, it was, the word actually means, the Hebrew word means to separate. So when you became a Nazarite, you were to separate yourself. Um, there were six, or not six, there were three things that a Nazarite did. Uh, we get them from Numbers chapter 6. These were the distinguishing features. So you had everybody else, and then when you would take a vow of the Nazarite, these were the three things that made you different than all the normal people. You abstained from anything related to grapes, and or alcohol. So it wasn't just you didn't drink alcohol, you didn't eat grapes, you didn't eat uh, anything that was sweetened with grapes. They would often grind, dry them and grind them up the, and make cakes out of them because it's high energy and stuff. You wouldn't even eat that. So it wasn't the alcohol that was the issue, it was the grapes that were the issue. So you wouldn't eat anything grape related. Um, you refrained from cutting your hair. So you, would, you wouldn't cut your hair during the time of the, the Nazarite vow. And lastly, you avoided dead people. Now, I think most people avoid dead people, but when somebody would die, they would wash the body. I mean, there was a, there's a very specific ritual and ceremony that took place with it. A Nazarite was not permitted to have any part of it, which means they couldn't be part of the funeral. Um which could be, you know, problematic. Um, in order to end your Nazarite vow, you had to bring uh, multiple offerings uh, and sacrifices. You would then shave your head, whether you were a he or she that took a Nazarite vow, either one. Um, and so you would, you would go to the, the tent of meeting or the temple, depending on what era you were in, and they would shave your head and they would take it and they would burn it. <coughs> Burning hair smells horrible. And it would be waved as a wave offering to God. Uh, it's not a sweet aroma. <laughs> but that's what they would do with it. Um, now, we don't know why. Scripture does not tell us why somebody would take a Nazarite vow. Which is interesting. It tells us how to do it. 
but not why. In Samson's case, God said that you're, this is what you're going to do. His mother was informed before his birth that that was what was going to happen. He was going to be a Nazarite. Samuel was offered to God, and God said he'll be a Nazarite. But others, Paul, we don't know why Paul took the Nazarite vow. We know he did it. The understanding that we have come up with nowadays is that it was a conditional vow, a vow, ugh, I can't talk, a conditional vow that people would take looking forward to an answered prayer. So nowadays, it's popular to fast. I'm going to pray about this thing and fast. And I expect God's going to give me an answer. We think that it was kind of used as that. That they would take a Nazarite, but it would often be a long period of time. As in, it could be years that you would live this way, praying for whatever the thing was. Um, lately, some of the uh, men that did not have children, that their wives were barren, would do this uh, to try and get an answer. Why can't my wife have children? That sort of thing. Um, it was the idea was selfless devotion to God um, by taking this vow. Some think that it was possibly uh, a transcended social class of people, um, that they, they believed themselves to be holy and trying to set themselves apart. We get the Essenes during Jesus' time and many of these other groups that lived out in the desert regions, and they often would take these kinds of vows. Um, the, the, the Essenes wouldn't even, they, they wouldn't marry women. They, they wouldn't have any sex, nothing. They, they just, I don't know how they thought that was going to help, but they, they did. They took these extreme vows in order to be set apart to do whatever they thought God's service was. Anyway, God is the one that raised up young men for the Nazarite vow. And Israel was corrupting them. They would go out, ah, oh, come on, just have a swig. Come on, eat this grape. They, they were trying to force them to break the vow. And God's got an issue with it. It's a big issue. These are people who have dedicated themselves to God. So God is, re, uh, is reliving history of what Israel was doing. And we see that Amos reminds them God acted on their behalf. God had done everything. They didn't become a nation on their own. God made them a nation. They were slaves. They were less than nothing. Living in Egypt, God gave them a country. God gave them a purpose. He gave them a culture. He gave them everything they needed. They were committing the very crimes God had destroyed the nations for. They were used to destroy the Canaanite nations. And now, 1,200 years later, they're living just like the Canaanites. Now, the problem is, is our world today would say, well, see, it's the land. The land is the problem. The Canaanites couldn't live right in the land, and neither could Israel. Uh, no, it's human nature. We have a sin nature. We want to defy God. Um, but they were living the same way the people got abhorred and had Israel wipe out. They were living the same way. And then we see God provided them prophets to warn them. 
And what happened? We saw how many kings during the in the book of Kings. I don't want to talk to that guy. I don't want to hear from him. He only has bad things to say. I want him to say that I'm going to win the battle. Not that, I, not that I'm going to lose. That I shouldn't go to war with them. I shouldn't go and conquer that town. What does God know anyway? Right? The problem is, is those prophets, and I, I think we have the same thing. When there are people in our lives telling us what we should be doing, what God's word tells us we ought to do, and we get all fussy and un unhappy about it. Many of them tend to leave because they don't want to hear what Chris has got to say, particularly politically or whatever, because, uh, well, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't want to have to deal with that issue. I like this guy just because he's pro-abortion. I like everything else about him. Well, it's a moral issue. Well, I don't care about moral issues. He's just, yeah. God gave grace to the people by sending the prophets. Just because you choose not to listen to them doesn't mean you won't be judged for what they had to say. We're doing the same thing, going back to what I started with, right? Here's the Bible. Here's what God has said throughout time about how he wants us to live. Just because we want to ignore it, just because we don't want to deal with it, just because it doesn't go with what's popular, doesn't mean we're not going to be judged by it. That is grace. He told us we need his son. He told us these things are sin. Don't do them. Just because we ignore it doesn't mean it isn't true. Comment, question. All right. Amos chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain the swift will not escape the strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life the archer will not stand his ground the fleet-footed soldier will not get away and the horseman will not save his life even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. That day. Anybody know what day he's talking about? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. He hasn't gotten there yet, but he's going to talk about it. Yeah. You're ruining people. It's interesting. This whole, this whole thing is about how... The rich, the powerful, those that are in position treat other people. And it isn't limited to the rich, the powerful, and all that, because the people beneath them, so you got the rich, and you got the middle class. Well, it's about how the middle class are treating the poor, and how the poor are treating the impoverished. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. It doesn't matter what. There are a lot of people out there who look at this and go, well, see, this is the problem with the rich. We need to get rid of the rich. Well, getting rid of the rich doesn't get rid of the problem. This is a people problem. People treat people beneath them poorly. This isn't socialism. This has nothing to do with economics. Yeah. 
This has everything to do with judgment. And God is going to reckon with them. Judgment reckoned by God. You're going to be judged because you're ignoring or silencing prophets. It won't stop God's judgment just because you shut them up. Today, we are putting people in Facebook jail. We won't publish what they had to say because it disagrees with mainstream society. We get no chance on the news because what we have to say doesn't matter as far as they're concerned. Shutting up the prophets will not stop God's judgment. You are still guilty. You are still in a wrong relationship with God. We think in our world today that wealth and power and all that is what matters. The world believes that's what matters. The reality is, is how we treat other people matters. Not how much money I have. The poorest person out there who shows kindness to somebody who can do nothing for them is more acceptable to God than the richest person giving millions to philanthropic concerns and who still hates poor people, who ignores them when he walks down the street or whatever, scoffs at them. That is not how God wants us to live. Amos gives us seven images that indicate God's judgment will be applied to everyone. It doesn't matter your position. Whether you're the guy on the horse, you're not going to outrun it. Whether you're the guy in armor, it isn't going to protect you enough. Everybody, those seven images, those are the seven strongest people, if you will. These were the people of strength and power in society. And God says, none of them are going to survive. They will be crushed like the sheaves of wheat. Comment, question. All right, let's wrap this up. Going back to my premise. The Bible reveals the principles by which God judges us. Last week, we talked about Josiah. He was just a child. We saw how God responded to his response to the word. He had no knowledge of the laws of God. They found the scroll, they brought it, they read it, he tore his clothes and said, we're guilty. <clears throat> he repented. And God said, okay, I'm not going to bring the judgment in your lifetime. The judgment is coming. We know this more than any other generation because we can look at Revelation and we know what's coming. <coughs> God has already told us how it ends. That judgment will come and we're not going to get away. Three things to take with us this morning. Real quick. God expects us to live lives of obedience that reflects his character. Not rule keeping. This isn't about the rules. 
It's about reflecting his character. He is loving, kind, merciful, graceful, all these things. I'm reminded of the story of the guy who owed his master millions and couldn't pay it. And the master said, okay, you're free. And so then he turned and went and found his fellow servant who owed him just a few bucks and beat him and threw him and had him thrown in prison. Was that the character of his master? No. See, that's the idea. We are to reflect God's character. Secondly, we should recount God's grace in our lives, responding with obedience. When we go back and look at where God was graceful to us, guess what? We'll turn around and be graceful to others, won't we? We'll obey the ideas of the law. See, he wrote it on our hearts. It wasn't just the rules. It was the very idea that we should be loving and kind. Oh, wait, he told us how many times, love one another. Oh, man. He had to tell us that, didn't he? Third, only through God's grace will we escape his complete judgment. Friends, I don't know if you care whether or not God says, well done, good and faithful servant on judgment day. It is my hope. I want to escape complete judgment. I don't want to have to be standing there and wringing my hands going, I don't believe I didn't do that. Uh, I wish I could go back and change it and all that. We need to be living that way now. Let's pray. Father, Help us to see the point and purpose of your rules and regulations and well, keep us from shutting them out so that we are judged by them. Lord, help us to take them in and understand them and live them out in our lives so that we can be a light to the world, so that we can stand before you one day and be good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen.